And it's lovely to be here to give you a reading this morning. It's from Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 to 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the peace of God be with you. Good morning. Good morning, everybody at home as well, for the great moment of the unveiling of the preacher. Who knows, this won't be a denominational thing in years to come, the moment the preacher gets set free. There's a precedent for everything, actually. I was thinking, as you look through the Bible, when Moses used to go up on the mountain to speak to God, he would come down and his face would be glowing so much that the people said, ah, put a mask over that. So he had to put a mask on all the time. And then when he was speaking the words of God, he would take it off. And then we're told in the New Testament that we all with unveiled faces reflect the glory of God in Jesus Christ. So I'm looking at you now and you're veiled, you're unveiled to God and unveiled to the world. So Father, we pray this morning that you would be with us. Despite all the restrictions, we are free indeed if we're free in Christ. And so we ask, Lord, that you would inspire that sense of the freedom of the gospel in our hearts and in our minds and in our words as we go about our daily business through the week. In Jesus' name, amen. Greetings from the deep south of, uh, of the area, Chard. Uh, they are meeting there this morning by YouTube. I suspect in 200 years' time, we'll be having denominations of YouTubers and Zoomers, and they'll say, when did that start? When did we all start meeting by YouTube or Zoom? And we'll have all sorts of criticisms of each other. But for the moment, we are one in Christ, and we are finding our way through this unusual circumstance together. It's very exciting. I wanted to talk this morning, then, about Philippians chapter 4. I've got a reasonably brief message, so if your kettle is on at home or you've already put the lunch on, don't worry about it, we'll get you there. And I want to start, and I can barely say, oh, here we go. So if we can go on to the next slide. Leah Perlman, the lady whose eyes you can see at the bottom there, she was working for Facebook when she and her team invented and launched the like button back in 2009. She's the person responsible for like, and every other social media site has basically copied it since then. Leah is also an artist, and she draws comics, and she had her own Facebook site, and she loved the attention that she would get for her comics after she invented the like button. She would get hundreds and hundreds of likes for every comic that she produced. Over time, of course, Facebook, like all social media sites, 
change the algorithm that they use in order to promote content to new users. And on the day that they changed the algorithm, Leah Perlman, the inventor of the like button, discovered that she had at best a handful of likes for each of her comics that she produced. Man, that must hurt. You've invented the like button, it's really working for you, and then suddenly it's not working enough. And her confidence in herself plummeted. She says this in this article that you see there. The curse is, if I'm not getting enough attention, I can freak out and feel like I'm not enough. The like button had become a compulsion for her. It had become a measure of her worth. And so she started to employ publicists. And she hints in the article that she had started to employ other specialists as well to deal with her own sense of a lack of worth because she wasn't being liked enough as the inventor of the like button. And the anxiety made her unwell. And she's very frank about that anxiety and the impact that it had on her life. And Leah now warns people against getting caught up in the need for online validation, in that constant search for having other people approve of you and tell you that you're doing well enough. The inventor of the like button says, don't worry too much about seeking for being liked by people. Next slide, please. Cambridge researcher Michael Kozinski invented a psychometric test. And he released the psychometric test on Facebook. And the idea was this, you subscribed, he sent you a bunch of questions, you answered the questions, he tells you what sort of person you are. And they use the basic psychological breakdown of extroversion and just all the kind of things that psychologists normally use. But as a subtle sub part of the test, Michael Kaczynski got your profile, including your history of likes, the things that you had clicked like on as you went about your business on Facebook. And obviously what he was doing as a researcher is looking at what he could find out about you from your likes and how you had filled in your profile, which was your basic test of your psychological personality. And he says this, he was able to discern things about individuals who regularly used the like button that they would have thought were complete secrets from every other human being. He could work out your psychometric profiling from your history of likes pretty much as well as he could from the way that you'd answered the questions. He said, this is a direct quote, that if he could see the last 70 things that you had liked, he would know you better than your friends do. And if he could see the last 300 things that you had liked, he would know you better than your spouse does. Think about that for a moment. Your politics, your sexuality, whether you've expressed it publicly or not, your prejudices, your preferences, subtle things he was able to work out by looking at people's history of likes. And that's why when Cambridge Analytica got hold of all that data, about tens of thousands of people, that became a big controversy because they knew you intimately. 
think about the trust that we give social media sites. Now they love it. They love having your likes. The more you like, the more they like it because they can then see what you regularly spend your time looking at. They can study what you like and they can change our behavior by feeding us more of the sorts of things that we'll like. So we'll spend more time there for the glorious and virtuous purpose of selling us to advertisers. And they package us up with other people with similar likes and they sell that package onto advertisers who will then try to shape our behavior in the real world based on their understanding of our likes. The things you like are in a very real way a measure of who you are. You can say anything you like about who you are, but if I can see the last 300 things you actually liked, I'll know you better than your spouse does. Next slide, please. Just as you're measured then by what you like by these social media companies, there's a sense in which you become more and more like the things you follow. God told his people in the Old Testament, don't worship idols. In other words, be careful whom or what you follow. Follow only the true thing. And this statement comes twice in 2 Kings and in Jeremiah. And it is a complaint by God about his people. And it says they followed worthless idols and they themselves became worthless. And it's stated twice. And I think that makes it a principle that's supposed to catch our attention. That you become like what you follow. And I think that is as true in the religious world as it is online and in the social media world, that what we follow slowly starts to change who we are. But if the principle is there for good, it's also uh, for bad, it's also there for good. So if you can become like what you follow, then if what you follow is worthwhile, if what you follow is virtuous, if what you follow is good and noble and right, that will change you as well into something that is noble and good and virtuous and right. We agonize in our generation. I think we think about it always as being a younger generation thing, but I'm not sure that's really true. We agonize about our identity. Who am I? Who am I supposed to be? Who am I really? If I peel away the layers, who am I deep down and underneath? And as anyone of, and who's ever gone through this process knows, if there's nothing that you're following, nothing that you're standing on, if there's no foundation, when you peel all the layers away, there is nothing there. We are what we follow. We are measured by what we like. I want to discover myself. So many people of my children's generation have been wanting to go away for a gap year. <laughs> uh, once upon a time. And they wanted to go on a gap year to discover themselves. And, you know, we've done it. I've done it myself. I, that's part of what led to me becoming a Christian when I discovered that the world was not about me. And therefore, discovering myself was not the most exciting and interesting journey that I might be able to go on. If we become like what we follow, that will be the source of our identity. If we spend all of our time focusing on particular individuals or particular things and following after them, they will shape us and they'll change what we like and we become more like the one we follow. So the next 
slide, please. So in his letter to Philippi, Paul is urging them, the people of Christ, not to follow worthless idols. Different idols than were available in Moses' day, same principle established. If you follow worthless idols, you will yourself become worthless. Instead, he says, and he's actually already said it once in this letter, follow my example. Paul, rather courageously, I think, says to them, what you've seen that's good, follow my example. Do what you've seen me doing. He's the one who founded the church there. In 1 Corinthians 10 or 11, I'm gonna say 10, he actually says, follow my example, as I follow the example of Christ, establishing a hierarchy of behavior that Paul himself is following after Christ and wants to be like him. And therefore he can turn to a church and say, follow my example, be like me, because in his heart he knew he was endeavoring to follow after Christ. Another way that we might say that then in our generation and to our generation, don't give your likes away too easily. Don't be too easily swayed by what other people like and be liking those things and following those things that the world says are great, but we might say are worthless. Because if you follow what is worthless, you will eventually become what is worthless. Don't waste your approval on things that don't merit it. Focus, Paul says in this letter, on what is true. Follow after those things, those people who are noble, that are noble. Be devoted to things that are right, not just the latest fads. Save your likes for things that are pure. Approve of what is lovely. Admire what is truly admirable. And then see what Facebook tries to sell you in terms of marketing. Don't stress about the things you can't control and don't get swept away with fads. I tried to think of all the various things that have gone out on social media since 2009 when Leah Perlman had invented the like button. And there was that time we were all flossing. I'm sure you were doing it at home, that peculiar dance. There was the ice bucket challenge. I'm sure we all poured buckets of ice cold water over ourselves. There was that, that mannequin thing where everyone had to be frozen in a particular position for ages and tried to look like a still life tableau. So many things that are so pointless. Follow what is right. Be devoted to the noble. Excel at what is excellent, Paul tells them. Praise the things that are truly praiseworthy. Next slide, possibly the last. What is then the source of good and noble things, if Paul is to be believed. So what starts this passage, his opening words that lead into the rest of this stuff is, rejoice in the Lord, always, veiled or unveiled, in public or in private, online or out in the real world, at work, at school, at college, rejoice in the Lord, Always, God made you in his image. In a kind of weirdly metaphorical way, we can't always see the, what the image of the person sitting even along the road from us is, especially not right now. But God made you in his image and he loves you and he would die for you. And we know that because he did die 
for you. Jesus Christ lived the life that was pure and righteous and holy and noble, and people followed after him, and then he laid down his life so that it wasn't just for those people who followed him then, but it was for all of us who will follow him today, who will give him our approval, who will engage with him. And he remained gentle and humble despite being betrayed, despite being let down, despite being persecuted. He became the pure, noble, righteous offering of God that was acceptable, not for his own sin because he did not sin, but for ours, for all of our sin. And if you are sitting and watching this, or if you're here listening to this, and you just feel so unworthy and so unsure about who you are and what it is that you are supposed to do with your life, what you are supposed to do with your life is to look into these things deeply and recognize that Jesus Christ, the Savior, died specifically for you, that you could follow him, that you could like him, that you could engage with him and approve him and be his follower forever. Paul goes on and says that if we live like that, we will be set free, as we just heard the song, I was about to say, as we just sang, as we just hummed along to. Then the sun sets free, is free indeed. He removes our shame. He removes our guilt. He calms our fears. He lifts our depressions. He dispenses with our anxieties as we engage more and more with him and follow after him. We are intended to walk free, to shine like lights in this universe, to receive the free gift of God, to pass on the free gift of God. And God says in this passage through Paul, don't be anxious. In a world of fear and uncertainty where we don't know whether we're all going to have to have perfect screens between us and the world. We just don't know what's coming. He is a rock-solid foundation who has been through, with his church, many worse things than this in the past. And the church is strong still today around the world. He loves you, so don't fear what they fear. What we feel as worry is, I believe, a God-given gift to prompt us to pray. Worry is something that is a twisted version of a thing God has given us that is supposed to remind us to pray about things that we cannot control and influence ourselves. And if we hold on to the worry instead of praying and releasing it, it cannot be healthy for us. But if when the worry comes, we pray and hand that thing over to God, we have, we're free again. And so we need, we, we have, our society makes us think that worry is always bad. Worry is a prompt to go to God. It's like the sense of burning when you're leaning on the hot plate. It's there for a very good reason, to get your hands off the hot plate, deal with the burn, and move on. Worry, give it to God instantly in prayer, move on. Hand it over and trust. I've made three trips to Delhi in the last 10 years, and each of those three trips, I've continued a friendship with a teenage girl called Sonam. And Sonam was 13 when I first met her, and she was the third generation of immigrant rag pickers in Delhi. This was a community that had immigrated into the city, were living rough in the center, and they made their living by going through the rubbish 
looking for anything they could sell, especially small bits of metal that they could take to metal traders and turn it over for a little bit of money in order to keep them going with food. And Sonam said when I first met her that there were three things she was terrified of. She was terrified of being beaten up. She was terrified of men and she was terrified of the police. And all she wanted to do was to be able to go on her life scavenging through the rubbish, trying not to be hurt by people. I was part of a group that was a Christian organization that continued working with that community over 10 years. And over time, many, many of those people gave their lives to Jesus. And there was a transformation as they were no longer worrying about fear and they were no longer individually trying to survive. And they began to work together and to combine together. And they came together as church and they started to look after one another. And the last time I saw Sonam, she gave me this testimony. She said, when I first met you, my life was about two meters away. Interesting distance, I hadn't thought about that. About two meters away. And she said, all I would be doing is looking down, staring at the rubbish, trying not to make eye contact with anyone, trying not to look too far in case I saw someone who might hurt me. My horizon was, she said, six feet away. She said, now, over time, I realized I started to look at people and I started to look down the street and I started to be able to kind of look around me more. And she said, today, I'm looking up to God. And she said, it's like my horizon has now become the entire city. I can see all around the city. I says, but if I go to a high place, I don't mind looking. I'm not afraid anymore. And her horizon has moved from the dirt and the rubbish of six feet away to the possibility of hope and the unknown future with a loving God, a city away. And that is the work of Jesus Christ. He lifts our hope horizon. He lifts our view from the rubbish just around us to the possibilities of a life that is meaningful, following after Jesus Christ, who reveals with unveiled face the glory of God, that we too might reflect that glory to others. We don't have to worship worthless idols in our society. We don't have to give our likes to things that don't deserve it. We are supposed to focus on the noble, the righteous, the holy, the true. And those things change us and make us the people that we want to be and give us a horizon of hope that is so much greater than it was before we knew Jesus. If everything, is around, everything around us is being shaken at the moment, as it really always is in different ways, the answer is to give our life to Jesus, knowing that he loves us and cares for us, to seek him as a foundation. We should be discerning in what we give our time to. We are not given all this time at home to watch more Netflix. I'm sorry, that is not the answer. We should be more focused on what is true and noble and right we should be careful whom we follow. And we should rejoice in the Lord always, allow him to expand our horizons of hope. And as the passage ends, may his peace be with us as we go on in his work.